raids had become commonplace over the southern part of Manila Bay by the end of December 1941, as Japanese forces swiftly overran Luzon, the largest island in the Philippines. Bataan Peninsula, on the western side of Manila Bay, and Corregidor Island, which guarded the bay's entrance, were prime targets for Japanese bombers and attack planes. And both targets were bombed incessantly. The USS Canopus, a 1920s-era submarine tender stranded in Manila Bay when the war started, was anchored in between those two targets and had, by late December, escaped the notice of enemy aircraft. Perhaps the old, relatively small ship that was disguised as a fishing craft and with little war value was too insignificant a target for the Japanese to waste their bombs on. Perhaps more than three weeks of being overlooked by enemy bombs had made the crew a bit complacent. Perhaps the drone of approaching enemy aircraft had become an easily unnoticed background noise. Besides, 33-year-old machinist Adolphus Hutchison and 27-year-old electrician Alton Hall had other responsibilities on their minds, like being in charge of the USS Canopus's busy, cramped, crowded engine room during the late afternoon on December 29, 1941. So, perhaps the sound of approaching motors couldn't even penetrate into the loud engine room. Regardless of what the men in the engine room did or did not hear, they definitely felt the repercussions of those aircraft. A squadron of Japanese bombers, their bombing run over Corregidor Island complete, turned toward base and, while flying over the Canopus, dropped their remaining bombs. Almost as an afterthought, it seemed. By some miracle, only one bomb hit the ship. That armor-piercing bomb tore through all the ship's decks before detonating. The explosion burst the engine room's pipes, spraying scalding steam, oil, and metal fragments throughout the close quarters. The first blast of steam incapacitated machinist Hutchison and electrician Hall. Other sailors were killed by the scorching steam filling the small room. The quick-thinking machinist mate shut off the steam at the boilers, ending the scalding hot steam's rampage into the engine room and saving more sailors from death. The ship's chaplain, Father Francis McManus, disregarded his own safety and rushed into the steam and smoke-filled room with a rescue party. They found several badly burned and scalded men, some wounded, some dead, on the engine room floor. Through this holy anointing, may the Lord, in his love and mercy, help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord, who frees you from sin, save you and raise you up. Chaplain McManus whispered, kneeling on the floor as he administered last rites to a dying sailor. Around him, the rescue party began removing the dead and wounded men. Chaplain McManus joined them, helping wounded men, including machinist Hutchison and electrician Hall, to a makeshift aid station. But conditions outside the engine room weren't much better. After tearing through the engine room and other decks, the bomb exploded near the ship's magazine. That's the place where ammunition is held. The explosion started several fires, which threatened to ignite the ammunition. So, above deck, the engine room survivors found a chaotic scene of sailors trying to put out fires with hoses and even bucket brigades. Below deck, crew members groped through smoke-filled corridors to help fellow sailors escape. And, as the fires raged, the question on everyone's mind loomed large. Could the old submarine tender survive this bombing, or would she take her crew to the bottom of Manila Bay? This is Left Behind.
Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Al-Masam, was one of those POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell these stories. Today I get to tell you about three sailors serving on the USS Canopus with my great-grandfather, Al-Masam, electrician Alton Hall, chaplain Francis McManus, and machinist Adolphus Hutchison. Alma was on board the Canopus during the bombing that was just described in the opening scene. In his memoir, he described the bombing and told about Machinist Hutchison's and Electrician Hall's injuries, which is where I first learned about these two brave sailors. And, while I was learning about them, I discovered Chaplain McManus. So let's jump in to the life stories of these three heroic men. Chaplain Francis Joseph McManus was born in 1905 in Cleveland, Ohio, the second child to Bernard and Anna McManus. His father, Bernard, worked as a manager, first at a coal office and then at a building supply. Bernard McManus's parents were, not surprisingly, born in Ireland. They probably emigrated from Ireland during the potato famines of the mid-1800s. Young Francis grew up in Cleveland and I expect his family were devout Catholics because in 1929, 24-year-old Francis was ordained to the Catholic priesthood in Innsbruck, Austria. Now, I don't have records of his ordination, but I do wonder if he attended the Collegium Canicinum, a Jesuit school of theology for Catholic priests located in Innsbruck. After returning to Ohio, Father McManus worked in various positions at Catholic churches in and around Cleveland, In October 1936, the 31-year-old priest joined the U.S. Navy as a chaplain. That's a religious leader for servicemen. By December 1941, he was assigned to the USS Canopus, where machinist Adolphus Hutchison and electrician Alton Hall were also serving. William Adolphus Hutchison, the Canopus machinist, was born in 1908 and spent his childhood on his family's farm in rural Indian Valley, Idaho, about 90 miles or 144 kilometers north of Boise. He was the second of eight children born to William and Viola Hutchison. The father, William, owned and worked his farm in Idaho. Around 1919, the Hutchison family moved to western Washington state, just minutes south of the Canadian border to a farm near Bellingham. Adolphus, as he was called, spent his teen years there, attending Mount Baker High School, and while still in high school, he joined the Navy in 1927. Sometime before World War II, Adolphus married a woman named Thelma. I know the couple lived in the San Francisco area by the late 1930s, but other than her name listed in a military record, I have found nothing about her, and I don't know if Adolphus and Thelma had children. By 1941, Adolphus was a warrant machinist aboard the USS Canopus. That made him a warrant officer, which, from what I understand about U.S. Navy ranks, is similar to the Army's non-commissioned officers, so like corporal or sergeant. In other words, Adolphus had worked his way up the Navy ranks from enlisted to a warrant officer. By the time World War II began, he was a 15-year Navy veteran and had spent the five previous years serving in the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet. Born in August 1914, the Canopus' electrician Alton Henry Hall 
was the second of three boys born to Henry and Amanda Hall. The Hall family lived on a farm near a rural Texas town called Comanche, which is pretty much dead center in Texas, about 140 miles or 225 kilometers southwest of Dallas. In 1930, when Alton was a teenager, the population of the town was 2,400 people. Alton's parents were from Alabama and seemed to have been, as were most of their Comanche neighbors, part of the early 1900s westward migration from the American South as families were trying to find and settle their own land. In November 1936, the gray-eyed, brown-haired 22-year-old went to Dallas and enlisted in the U.S. Navy. Both of his brothers served in the Army during World War II, and I have a picture of the three of them before the war, all wearing what we believe to be Alton's uniforms. The picture's on my website, and the link is in the show description. For Alton Hall, it was, join the Navy and see the Asiatic Pacific. He spent the late 1930s sailing between the Philippines, China, and Hong Kong. Sometime during his travels, he sent home a statue of Buddha, which the family still has today. He also collected matchbooks, I believe at his various stops, that commemorated his travels. And it appears he even spent at least a few months as a crew member on board the submarine USS Perch. By the time he joined the Canopus's crew in February 1941, the young man with a handsome square face and friendly smile had earned the rank of electrician's mate second class. He was 5 feet 10 inches tall and had a well-built muscular frame, perhaps from growing up on a farm. Now this episode is about three POWs, but there is a fourth very important character in this story, the USS Canopus herself. When World War II began, the USS Canopus was in Manila Bay, having just undergone renovations to make her more like a warship. But at heart, Canopus wasn't a warship. She was a mother. The ship's captain, Earl Sackett, wrote, A less likely candidate than the Canopus for the role of heroine in a tale of adventure could hardly be imagined. She was no longer young and had never been particularly dashing, but her partisans were always ready to ascribe a certain majesty to her appearance. Undeniable, she waddled like a duck, as was pointed out in many a good-natured jibe, but that was only natural in a middle-aged motherly type, and she was truly mama to her brood of submarines, which used to forage with her from the Philippines to the China coast and back again each year. The Canopus, which was named after a Greek mythological navigator in the Trojan War, was a submarine tender. She sailed with several patrolling submarines through Asiatic Pacific waters and supplied them with food, weapons, chemicals, and anything else the submarine or crew might need. So, when war started and most of the other U.S. Navy ships left the Philippines, the Canopus remained in Manila Bay to take care of her submarines that were still patrolling the Philippine waters, slipping undetected through and below the increasing Japanese naval blockade surrounding the islands. When the rest of the U.S. forces withdrew to Bataan, Canopus joined them anchoring in the small harbor at Maravellas on Bataan's southernmost point. Captain Sackett explained, We moored the ship to the shoreline in a protective cove and again spread our camouflage nets overhead. This time, the object was to make the ship look like part of the jungle foliage ashore, and we succeeded very well by using mottled green paint with plenty of tree branches tied to the masts and upper works. The crew hoped the camouflage would keep the ship from being targeted by bombers, and it did, for a few days. Disillusionment of this hope was not slow in coming. 
On December 29th, our daily visitors, evidently deciding that Manila had been adequately taken care of, turned their attention toward us. Squadron after endless squadron showed their contempt for the guns of Corregidor by blasting that island from end to end, and the last group of the day, as if by an afterthought, wheeled in from that fatally exposed direction and blanketed the Canopus with a perfectly placed patter of bombs. Tied up as she was, and unable to dodge, it seemed a miracle that only one of the closely bunched rain of missiles actually struck the ship, but that one bomb nearly ended our career then and there. It was an armor-piercing type that went through all the ship's decks and exploded on top of the propeller shaft under the magazines, blowing them open and starting fires which threatened to explode the ammunition. Some bombs hit the cove's nearby hillside, raining rocks and dirt on the ship's deck. Despite these obstacles, fire crews began fighting the fires from the deck. Smoke poured from ammunition shuttles that led to the damaged ammunition magazines, those storage areas, below deck. Through them, the sailors on deck heard detonations below, increasing their fears that those magazines might blow up at any moment. Nevertheless, crew members directed their hoses down the hatches. One gunner's mate, hose in hand, even climbed down a smoke-filled ammunition trunk to get down to the fires. Then the water pumps failed, but the sailors formed bucket brigades to continue the fight. Below deck, another group pushed through the smoke into the compartments near the ammunition magazines. The ship was equipped with oxygen-breathing apparatuses, but these, of course, were not accessible due to the explosion. A sailor, donning the only one still available, carried a hose directly into a magazine. He was supported by shipmates, who worked in shifts, staying in the smoke-filled areas as long as possible before needing fresh air. Meanwhile, Chaplain McManus, a 37-year-old with a kind, round face, understanding eyes, and a small mustache above his upper lip, and described by the ship's captain as, quote, our fighting chaplain, close quote, rushed into the inferno-like engine room on a rescue mission. He received a silver star, the U.S. military's third highest decoration awarded to those showing valor in combat, for his actions that day. The citation read, when an armor-piercing bomb exploded in the vicinity of the after-magazine crushing or exploding 70 rounds of ammunition, killing six men and wounding six others, and starting fires in adjacent compartments, Chaplain McManus, with complete disregard for his own safety, entered the smoke and steam-filled engine room, assisted in removing the wounded, and administered the last rites of the dying. His courageous action, beyond the call of duty and in the face of grave danger, is in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. The crew battled the Canopus blaze for four hours before the flames were under control and crewmen able to examine the magazines. Captain Sackett continued. When the magazines were examined, several crushed and exploded powder charges were found, mute evidence showing how close to complete destruction the ship and all on board had been. Nothing less than a miracle could have prevented a general magazine explosion at the time the bomb set off those powder charges, but miracles do happen. The engine of destruction had carried its own antidote, and its fragments, which severed the pipes near the magazines, had released floods of steam and water at the danger point, automatically keeping fire away from the rest of the powder. Our numbers just weren't quite up that day. That evening, the ship's repair crews went to work fixing the bomb's damage, while the supply crew continued tending the submarines. It was business as usual, despite the gaping hole in the ship's deck for most of the crew, except perhaps for electrician Hall and machinist Hutchison. Both men were injured by the steam room explosions. Other crew members described their injuries as, quote, badly wounded 
and badly burned, close quote. But they both survived. I don't have information about the extent of their injuries beyond those somewhat vague, badly descriptions. Obviously, the injuries were severe enough for at least two crew members in their later accounts of the incident to record the men by name as having been injured and or incapacitated. My best guess is that Hall and Hutchison would have been ferried two miles south to the Navy hospital located within the maze of tunnels dug into the hills on Kurgador Island. Regardless of their injuries severity and whatever hospital stay they had, both men were back on board the Canopus and seemingly fulfilling their duties four months later by early April 1942. During these same months of long siege on Bataan and Corregidor, Chaplain McManus often visited Corregidor Island himself. He focused on ministering to Catholic servicemen, especially those among the 4th Marines who were preparing to defend Corregidor's beaches from potential Japanese ground landings. Truly, Father McManus was a living embodiment of the type of American that President Franklin D. Roosevelt described in an address to the nation the day after the U.S. declared war on Japan, Germany, and Italy. The true goal we seek is far above and beyond the ugly field of battle. When we resort to force as now we must, we are determined that this force shall be directed toward ultimate good as well as against immediate evil. We Americans are not destroyers, we are builders. We are now in the midst of a war, not for conquest, not for vengeance, but for a world in which this nation and all that this nation represents will be safe for our children. We expect to eliminate the danger from Japan, but it would serve us ill if we accomplished that and found that the rest of the world was dominated by Hitler and Mussolini. So we are going to win the war and we are going to win the peace that follows. And in the difficult hours of this day, through dark days that may be yet to come, we will know that the vast majority of the members of the human race are on our side. Many of them are fighting with us. All of them are praying for us. But in representing our cause, we represent theirs as well. Our hope and their hope for liberty under God. When Bataan fell to Japanese forces on April 9, 1942, all three men, McManus, Hall, and Hutchison, escaped to Corregidor Island with the rest of the Canopus crew. Thus, they were spared the infamous Bataan Death March. The Canopus herself, however, wasn't so lucky. A few weeks after that first bomb hit, she was bombed again. She remained afloat, however, and became a huge asset for the soldiers fighting with Bataan. It's a cool story, and I'll detail it in a couple of weeks. But she really wasn't seaworthy without substantial repairs. So, on the night of April 8th to 9th, 1942, as U.S. forces prepped to surrender Bataan, the Canopus crew scuttled her, that is, 
sank her on purpose, sacrificed so that this faithful mother couldn't fall into enemy hands. It was a difficult decision and loss for the crew. Captain Sackett later recalled, Our crew never could quite believe, until the battered hull finally slipped into its last rest beneath the waves, that somehow the old girl would not manage to pull through as she had that day of the first bombing, and take them all out to rejoin the big U.S. Navy fleet that was supposedly on its way to rescue the men on Bataan and Corregidor. Chaplain McManus, Machinist Hutchison, and Electrician Hall remained on Corregidor for the next month, enduring constant air raids, bombardment, and shelling as Japanese forces laid siege on the island fortress. Supplies, food, ammunition, and medical dwindled quickly, and the situation on Corregidor became dire for our three heroes and the 10,000 other American and Filipino servicemen and women on the island. Japanese ground forces landed on Corregidor on the morning of May 6, 1942. By the afternoon, the United States surrendered the entire Philippine island nation to Japan. Hall, McManus, and Hutchison became prisoners of war. Later that month, Machinist Hutchison's parents, back home in northern Washington state, received word that their son was missing in the Battle of Corregidor. A local newspaper explained, The Navy emphasized it had no direct word Hutchinson had been either killed or injured and told the parents he may have been taken prisoner by the Japs. Hutchinson's wife and parents received official word of his POW status a year later in spring 1943. By that time, he and his Canopus shipmates had been prisoners at Kabanatuan POW camps, Japan's largest World War II prison camp, for almost a year. Life at Kabanatuan was difficult for all POWs, with little food, disease running rampant, and constant hard labor. But Chaplain Francis McManus was a beacon of light. He held religious services for the Catholics in camp, even when it was against Japanese orders and at risk of his own life. He was described by other POWs as never downhearted, never complaining, and somehow having a sense of humor throughout the long, torturous months at Kabanatuan. A fellow Navy chaplain said of McManus, In military prison camp number one, Kabanatuan, Chaplain McManus constantly visited the sick, gave generously of very limited personal funds for the purchase of food for the sick, and frequently worked on tea tales so that a sick man would not have to go out. Many times he volunteered to take the place of a sick chaplain so that he would not have to work on the prison farm, airport project, or in cleaning the Japanese guard area. He had the profound respect of men of all faiths and was a potent factor in bolstering their morale. A survivor of Kabanatuan later said, Chaplains were as much deprived by the Japanese as any other one of us and were having a difficult time keeping themselves alive. I do believe, however, that Chaplain McManus was probably the most outstanding chaplain with us. McManus had a quality rarely found in an individual. He was convincing in every undertaking, and I, personally, have found him to be a man who believed in what he preached. Pardon the expression. After he'd spent more than a year in captivity, McManus's parents received a card from him in August 1943. I used the word from loosely, as it was a typewritten form letter. It informed McManus's parents that their son was a POW, where he was located, and that he was in, quote, good health. Many POW's families received these cards, most giving a good report of the POW's health and situation. The cards, as a rule, typically did not reflect reality. 
A year later, in summer 1944, McManus's parents received information about their son in a very unique way. A former, high-ranking POW named Lieutenant Colonel A.C. Schaffner was released by Japan in a POW exchange. He wrote a letter to McManus's mother offering her details about her son. I am happy to state I knew your son, Father F.J. McManus, on Corregidor, and later in prison camp number one on Cabanatuan, Luzon. Father McManus performed his duty in an outstanding manner, and I believe he was decorated at least once. That decoration was, as you already know, for his rescue efforts during the Canopus bombing. Schaffner's letter continued. He served on Corregidor after the fall of Bataan, where I met him. We lived in the same barracks four months. During his internment in prison, Father McManus spent most of his time caring for the sick and boosting the morale of everyone. His devotion to duty and God made him the inspiration of the camp, and his uniting efforts were known to everyone in the camp. The last time I saw him was October 26, 1942. He was in excellent mental and physical condition. I don't know if or how much machinist Hutchison's and Electrician Hall's families heard from or about their sons during those long two and a half years at Cabanatuan. By October 1944, U.S. and other Allied forces had made significant advancements toward retaking the Philippines. Allied air raids on the Philippines increased, and in response, Japanese leaders accelerated movement of POWs to work camps in Japan. So, on October 11, 1944, machinist Adolphus Hutchison, the one from Washington State, and nearly 1,800 other POWs were quickly loaded, between American air raids, into a cargo hold of the Japanese transport ship Arisan Maru at a dock in Manila. Hutchison and the other sick, starving, and emaciated men, having already endured the torture of Japanese POW camps for 29 months, were now packed into a ship's hold. Each POW had several five-gallon oil barrels for waste, but rampant dysentery quickly made for extremely unsanitary conditions. The hold's temperatures reached upwards of 120 degrees Fahrenheit, and the men didn't have enough water. For these and other reasons, the Arisan Maru was a hell ship. The ship headed out to sea for nine days to avoid American bombings in Manila. Then it returned to the city where it joined a convoy of 17 other Japanese ships, including three destroyers, for protection. The convoy left Manila in the early morning darkness of October 21st, heading for Takao, Formosa, in present-day northern Taiwan. Two days later, the Japanese destroyers picked up signals from American submarines. In response, the convoy broke apart. The Arisan Maru, loaded with POWs, was slow the slowest of the whole convoy. By 5 p.m. on October 24, 1944, the Arisan Maru was traveling alone when the American sub USS Shark launched a torpedo at it. The Japanese ship was unmarked, so the American submarine had no idea the cargo in its hold. The ship split in half, the back sinking into the sea, but it stayed afloat until around 7.40 p.m. Nearly all the POWs escaped the ship, despite Japanese guards cutting the hold's rope ladders as the Japanese abandoned the ship. Reports say that no POWs died when the torpedo hit the ship. Two Japanese destroyers returned to the scene. They attacked and sank the shark. All 87 American sailors died on that sub. 
The destroyers then turned to rescuing survivors. Japanese survivors. American POWs swam through the South China Sea waters to the destroyers, but they didn't meet with rescue. Instead, those on board the destroyers used poles to push and beat away the frantic POWs. Desperate POWs clung to whatever pieces of wreckage they could find, but help never arrived. Only nine POWs survived. Sadly, 36-year-old machinist Adolphus Hutchison was among the 1,773 military and civilian POWs who died. The Arisan Maru sinking is the largest loss of American lives in a single maritime incident. And it's ironic that Adolphus Hutchison's death came at the hands of a submarine whose brothers he had helped keep afloat all those years on the USS Canopus. Machinist William Adolphus Hutchison is considered missing in action, and his name appears on the walls of the missing at the Manila American Cemetery, alongside 36,000 other World War II servicemen whose bodies were also unrecoverable. Back in the Philippines, electrician Alton Hall, the farm boy from Texas, was among the men too sick for Japanese officials to transport to Japan work camps. While machinist Hutchison was being loaded onto the Arisan Maru, Alton Hall was in a military hospital at Manila's Bilibid Prison, which was a POW holding facility and hospital, suffering from beriberi and severe malnutrition. Beriberi is a vitamin B1 deficiency that can decrease muscle strength, cause nerve damage, and even heart failure. It was a very common disease among American POWs in the Philippines. Seeking to ease Bilibid Hospital's overcrowding issues, the Japanese established Sakura Prison Hospital, located at the former American military base, Fort William McKinley in Manila. This hospital, staffed by American POW medical personnel, opened on November 15, 1944. A very sick Alton Hall was among the first 150 Bilibid POW patients transferred to Sakura, at 6 a.m. on November 15, 1944. After two years and six months as a POW, the 5-foot, 10-inch Alton weighed a mere 90 pounds. The Sakura Hospital was a two-story building, a dirty, unfurnished, unsanitary two-story building. It had no beds, no mattresses. Instead, the Japanese provided one woven bamboo mat per four patients. Some men did not even get blankets. The weak, sick, starving patients received corn and rice twice a day. But despite the hopelessness of their situation, there was optimism among the patients. American air attacks on Manila were becoming more common. The Americans were returning. Even in that though, there was risk. The hospital's American director requested permission to paint a large red cross on the building's roof so the American planes wouldn't bomb the hospital filled with sick American POWs. I'm not sure if or when that permission came. At 5.30 a.m. on Sunday, November 19, 1944, just four days after Hall was transferred to Sakura, an air raid sounded at the military hospital. The Japanese guards ran in full gear for their foxholes. The Americans, some of the medical personnel, some patients, all of them prisoners of war, were ordered inside the hospital. They peered through the windows and saw planes arriving from all directions. The markings were clear. They were American. The Yanks were finally coming. And that bolstered hope 
because even though the American prisoners were starving and sick, somehow these Yank visits, air raids, were, quote, a treat for starvation, close quote. The raid continued through breakfast and even through a Sunday service, with shells and fragments falling around the hospital grounds. But Alton Hall was not among the patients at breakfast or watching the air raid or praying in the service. Instead, the 30-year-old sailor lay in a quiet, dark corner on a bamboo mat and covered by mosquito nets. Sometime during all the tumult of the morning raids, a medical officer discovered that electrician Hall had, according to the Sakura hospital log, died during the night without calling for medical attention. Officially, he passed sometime between 2 and 5.30 a.m. He died of beriberi, heart disease, and severe malnutrition. The hardships of moving to the unequipped, unprepared hospital also contributed to his death. Alton Hall was buried about 400 yards from the Sakura camp. He was the first of two deaths during the six weeks this hospital camp was open. The Americans finally arrived in Manila in January 1945, but that would be mere weeks too late for Alton Hall. The American arrival in the Philippines also came too late for Chaplain McManus. In mid-December 1944, he was loaded onto the hell ship Aroku Maru with some 1,600 other POWs. He survived the bombing of that ship by American planes. The ship was, again, unmarked, so U.S. pilots didn't know what cargo was on board. McManus was then loaded onto a different ship, which sailed to Formosa. That American ship, too, was bombed by American planes. A fellow Catholic chaplain on the same ship later wrote, On the death ride from Manila, many strange things happened. When three bombs hit us, while in the forward hold at Takao Bay, Formosa, on January 9, 1945, officers on all sides of me were killed. For three days, none of us could get out of this hold, and the Japs would give us no medical aid. But that's too gruesome a story. Father Frank McManus was seriously wounded at this time, and died January 22, 1945, en route to Moji, Japan. Father Francis Joseph McManus died four days after his 40th birthday. His body was likely buried at sea, and his name appears, with Machinist Hutchison's, on the tablets of the missing at Manila American Cemetery. After witnessing Father McManus's example and sacrifice, a Marine sergeant who knew Father McManus later stated, It was a great privilege to have known and worked alongside Father McManus. I no longer wonder at the faith that could exalt the primitive Christian's martyrs to die so horribly for an ideal. I know the answer. I have seen it in a living man. I have walked with the saint. McManus was the first Catholic chaplain from the Cleveland area to die in World War II. The Cleveland area branch of the Global Catholic Fraternal Service Order, Knights of Columbus, was established in 1946 and is named after him. It's called the Lieutenant McManus Assembly. Adolphus Hutchison's family in Washington received word of his death more than six months after he died. Adolphus was married, but I don't know if he left behind children as well as a widow. His three brothers and a brother-in-law also served in the U.S. Navy in the Pacific during World War II. However, unlike Adolphus, they all returned home from the war. In January 1949, so about four years after the war ended, Alton Henry Hall's remains were returned to Texas, where he now rests in Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery in San Antonio. 
His two brothers, Oliver and Orville, also served in World War II, one in the Army and one in the Air Corps. Both returned home, married, and had families. I had the opportunity to speak with Oliver's granddaughter, Rihanna Miller. She's machinist Alton Hall's great-grandniece. She said, I know it always tortured my grandfather that his brother Alton Henry was lost so young, especially with the fact that the campers liberated so soon after his death. In fact, he and my grandmother named their second son Alton Ray in honor of Alton Henry and in memory of him. And my uncle Alton Ray always took extreme pride in the fact that he was named after a war hero and what his uncle gave for the country. And he always wore his ring that had an A initial on it. And as a kid, we were always told that the ring and the Bible were the only things that came back from the War Department. After the war, or so the family story goes, a sailor from a nearby town brought back Alton Henry's footlocker to the Hall family. Rihanna explains. One of my aunts remembered a story that came to the family through a soldier that brought back Alton Henry's footlocker to my great-grandparents. She said that she was pretty sure this young man was from Hamilton, Texas, which is right beside Comanche, Texas, where we all grew up, Um, and that this soldier served with Alton Henry on the campus um, and that he was also in the prison camp with Alton Henry and moved to the Secura Prison Hospital and then was moved back and subsequently liberated. And the story goes that when he brought the footlocker back, that he told them a story of how he and Alton were boiling grass in their urine for food. Now, I haven't heard stories of boiling grass in urine for But I do know that the POWs boiled grass and succulents to make a soup they called the Green Death. And I also know that water was sometimes scarce at the camps. So, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if the POWs had to resort to urine. The Buddha statue that Alton had sent home during his pre-war travels became a permanent feature in his brother Oliver's home as a doorstop and remains in the family today. And even though Alton Henry never married or had children, his memory lives vibrantly on today in his family. Rihanna explains, I believe he must have had extreme strength and determination to have lasted as long as he did. And I full well believe that if he had been able to hang on a little longer, he would have been able to come home to his family. She went on to share some thoughts on the kind of man she imagines Alton Henry to have been. I'd love to tell you a little bit about my grandfather, Oliver, Alton Henry's brother, because I believe it will kind of shed a little bit of light on the type of person that Alton Henry might have been. And So my grandfather, Oliver, was a very steadfast, moral, and strong man, both mentally and physically. Um, He was a mechanic, and he had a full-service gas station in our small town his entire life, and he was a very determined man, no matter what he set his mind to. He quit smoking cold turkey when I was a little girl just to show the doctor um, that he would live longer than him. He had a stroke um, when I was a girl in the early 90s, and he was paralyzed in a hospital bed for years. And my grandmother, she visited him every day in our local nursing home. And and when she passed away, my grandfather was told that she'd gone to be with the Lord. And within two weeks, he also passed. 
Um, He had been years waiting for her, paralyzed and trapped in a body that wouldn't work. And then their son, Alton Ray, who was named for Alton Henry, also had this type of strength. In the early 80s, he was diagnosed with uh, muscular dystrophy. And the doctors told him at the time that he wouldn't live more than five years. Um, Well, he passed away in 2004. And when I was young, I just could never understand how he kept going. But he was determined not to lose his independence and his mobility. The disease was not going to bust him. And then my dad, Weldon, also had this type of grit. He battled a rare ocular cancer for three years. um, And within that time, developed an autoimmune uh, syndrome. He completely lost the ability to walk the majority of the large motor skills. and But he fought back from that and relearned how to walk. Um, then he, when he relapsed, he went through several just very difficult surgeries, all because he was not going down without a fight. And I think there's enough evidence to show that Alton Henry, no matter the circumstances that he found himself in, had great tenacity, and it's always been a source of pride for our family that Alton Henry gave his life fighting for America during the Second World War. Truly a family of brave men full of grit. Also, I applaud the way the Hall family is keeping Alton Henry Hall's memory alive through the generations. Truly a model for all of us in remembering those men and women who died so young. Perhaps the saddest thing about these three men's deaths is that, as Alton's great-grandniece said, they died so close to the war's end. If Alton could have held on just a bit longer before succumbing to sickness, if American forces could have kept those transport ships from leaving the Philippines, perhaps all three men could have made it home. What if? Tragic words that never have answers. But despite all that, three American heroes who served tirelessly and gave all for freedom. Back in late December 1941, while the Canopus crew were battling those bombing fires, a naval aviator just on shore from where the Canopus was anchored noticed a flaw that posed a huge threat to American forces on Bataan, and perhaps even to the great General MacArthur himself. With no ground troops available to fix this error, this aviator assembled a ragtag team of Navy men, Marines, and aviators without planes, and held off a Japanese advance More on that next week. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Electrician Halls, Machinist Hutchison's, and Chaplain McManus's stories on my website. The link is in the show description. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Left Behind is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voice acting by Paul Sutherland and Tyler Harmon. Special thanks to Alton Hall's great-grandniece, Rihanna Miller, for her information, research, and voice work. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken. And I'll be back next week with the audacious wartime strategies of an amazing naval aviator. (laughs) 